the information, suggestions, and ideas of the podcaster or any other non-accredited, unqualified guests are exactly that, opinions, and do not constitute professional advice, counsel, or prescriptive recommendations for our listening audience. If you need help, seek professional help and do it today. Welcome to the Unlimited Worth Podcast. We are normalizing the narrative for men who have healed from their childhood trauma by sharing stories of happiness, success, and love. I'm on a mission to encourage millions of men and the families who love them get the support and healing they need so they can realize their unlimited worth. Jake Sticka, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you with us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Jake's changing the way we see, act, think about masculinity through his work at Next Gen Men with a vision of the future where boys and men feel less pain and cause less harm. Now, Jake, I've, I know you a little bit and I've definitely checked you out and all of the social media and all the platforms you're on and that just seems just so brief to really do justice to what you bring to the table here today. So. Maybe you can help me understand a little bit before I get into my usual shtick. What was your journey to be in the role you're in today, leading men and changing that conversation? I think brevity has has a certain magic to it as well, too. I think we sometimes overthink and overtalk about these types of things. And, and if we change the way we see, act and think about masculinity, we're, we're moving the conversation forward. You know, we, we all have these journeys to get to where we got and... You can't see it in the podcast format, but I am six foot eight. I'm, you know, a tall, straight white male, got all those check boxes of privilege. And despite that, you know, really struggled with my my own mental health in the form of depression in my late teens and early twenties. And at 19, my coping mechanism was binge drinking and fist fights. And at 22, it was self-harm. And uh, that landed me in, in, you know, therapy and counseling and, and the beginnings of a healing journey. And what I really came to understand was it was this masculine script. You got to be tough. You can't show emotion. You can't ask for help. That was harming me. And, and the really messed up thing in that was that like nobody external to me was saying that my partner wasn't saying that my dad wasn't saying that my friends weren't saying that it was all this internal programming that I picked up through a lifetime of, you know, being a boy and becoming a man. So kind of that was my awakening, you know, 22, 23, somewhere around there. I co-founded this organization with uh, two other guys. Uh, one of them is my best friend from university. And he unfortunately lost his 13-year-old brother to suicide in 2007. Young black youth experiencing homophobic bullying. So, you know, we imagine that perhaps he was in the closet and then, uh, you know, just grieving and healing as, as friends together. And then our third co-founder has a, a master's in, in public health and, and was doing sexual health education with, with young people in Jamaica. Between the three of us, we really had this strong feeling that we wanted a different narrative for the next generation of men, not the same one that we inherited. And, and that was the the birth of the organization back in 2014. Jake, Jake thanks for a little, you know, humoring me in that, uh, in learning to position you where you where you are today. You talk about this, you were the fighting and drinking and brawling and, you know, 6'8". I'm sure super fit, athletic built guy, intimidating as hell, but someone every other person wants to take a run at, I'm sure as well. Did some of this stem from anything earlier in your life? I'm at a point now in my life where I don't really take kindly. I never really suffered fools much, 
but I don't suffer anything that's not meaningful any longer. Um, we can get back to the weather, and but we can get into more meaningful conversation right away. And when we do, it's helpful. Did you find that your reflection was, I'm not the guy I want to be because of the world I'm in today? Or did it trace back to something, you know, more insidious, you know, or more traumatic, let's say, in your childhood? I wouldn't say that I, I had any sort of kind of like outright trauma. You know, I have a, a good and healthy relationship with my father and, and a challenging one with my mother. But when it comes to maybe equity and like typecast stereotypes and those types of things, I definitely had a bit of a different experience growing up. Uh, we immigrated to Canada in the early 90s from Czechoslovakia, and we were refugee immigrants. And, you know, some people will say, oh, you're, you know, a white male, this and that, but I still have a different lived experience around these types of other things. So I always had like a keen sense of like justice and fairness uh, through through life in that sense. And I played semi-pro basketball. I grew up in, in locker rooms and, you know, I'm very passionate about sport as an entry point for transformation. And I know the power of the locker room and coaching and especially like I think coaching for young men, early childhood education is, is dominated by women majority, right? And so most uh, young men's first kind of like role model of masculinity outside of their immediate family. So outside of their dad, their father, their, or sorry, their grandfather, their uncle, their cousin, or whatever is, is a male sports coach often. Right. And those people are tasked with teaching you about competition and uh, how to, you know, be on a team and compete against another team. And I think the narrative out there often really spills over into domination. When I think about kind of masculinity, I think, you know, we're steeped in the culture of competition and domination from a very young age. And um, being an athlete, I was imbued in that in so many different situations. And so I think that was probably a lot of what led to that experience. And and also, you know, at 19, I was I was academically ineligible to play play on the team that I was on. And um, I think I was struggling with a lack of uh, identity and purpose. Up until that point, I'd been like, Jake, the tall guy basketball player, right? Now that, that was my identity. And I, I, I was, yeah, Jake, the tall guy, but no longer the basketball player. And so, yeah, I think it was a dislocation from that. How we identify and how we carry our identity in the world often is challenged. And where we create that identity comes from our life experience, obviously. I talk a lot actually lately about congruence, and I think you even mentioned that. And, and it's the incongruence of how we think we're supposed to be. And some of our subconscious traits, I know with trauma and childhood trauma, it's very much what gets locked in to our subconscious. And then we, you know, navigate the world with this protective shell that we don't know exists. <laughs> And, and it creates these patterns and limits on us. Whereas you kind of came from, there's a lot that was outstated, you know, visibly, physically, and in your status. We hold athletes and elite athletes in a higher regard. The locker room is a great place to start here. And from leadership, let's talk a little bit about that, about how you can go from this moment of, there's a, there, we have an issue here to crossing the chasm because the the spectrum of leadership in the locker room for athletes of all ages, not just elite, is so varied. And you must have very strong opinions of that. Well, I love that you use the term congruence because what I talk about is integrity. Some people think about integrity as 
I don't know, maybe like honor or something like that. But I, I literally think of it as being integrated, right? So you're the same person in all of these situations, which is a form of congruence, right? Mm-hmm. And I think so many of us men are not integrated. We're one guy in the locker room. We're one guy in our romantic relationship. We're another guy with our kids. We're another guy with the boys at the pub, right? Versus like really having that congruence of identity across that space. And I think a lot of that has to do as well with like that script, but that like societal expectation as well too. I think that we we as men respect someone who's integrated and who's like consistent across, but from a young age, we're socially conditioned to cut off maybe parts of ourselves. I think about, you know, the idea of man up or be a man, right? Mm-hmm. Like those feelings or emotions, whatever reason you have, that pain, that upset, that embarrassment, like cut that off, right? Be a man, man up, right? That That's one aspect of you you're not allowed to anymore. When you get starting dating and relationship and you say, oh, I really care for you and, you know, I want to make you happy and, and those types of things. Ah, man, quit being such a, you know, sissy or simp, I think the kids are saying now, right? Yeah. Like cut that off, right? Like there's just so many, I know you're you're very passionate about conversations about like trauma. And sometimes I think when we think about traumas, it's it's like a very like, you know, newsworthy, like front page of the newspaper thing that we think about with trauma. But those little experiences over our lives that we get as boys coming up, those are all like micro traumas that add up to that narrative of you got to be tough, you can't show emotion, you can't ask for help. And so going back to your question about kind of leadership in those spaces is those leaders need to be aware of this programming, right? And I just don't think many guys are until they hit a wall. They have the experience that you had. They had the experience that I had. And they start thinking critically like, holy shit, how the hell did I end up here? Um, Because it is a gendered experience. And many men don't think about gender throughout their lives because the masculine gender is often higher valued and kind of moved along in society. But simultaneously as it advantages us it harms us in these incredible ways as well too jake you're also married is that correct is are you no, in a relationship i have a, a common law partner yes. you have a partner the great example would be you know you were wired to dominate in the paint how's that working at home <laughs> right you know how's, how's that dominate the paint working at home or in the office or on the street with your community it doesn't fit and so how do we it's not congruent that's for sure i mean like even a quick example from today i i still you know train with a couple buddies a week i i'm six eight and played uh out east and and overseas and they're both six four one played in bc another one in ontario and they both are a bit more competitive than i am until it gets like really physical and then it kicks in for me Mm -hmm. but you know they were talking about how i have this like gentle giant programming as well too Mm -hmm. right and so there's a lot of social conditioning in and around these types of things but you're absolutely right like it doesn't work when you translate you know your identity as like a dominant basketball player into a relationship with a partner or into a relationship uh you know with a child or those types of things right and then there's the key 
that's the asynchronous situation we find ourselves in where we have this predisposed idea of what we're supposed to be and then our environment says you got no no like a little empathy would help here and you go i don't know where to do that (laughs) you know and so when you consider talking about masculinity and this is first and foremost one of the biggest pieces that you work on masculinity and what it means to be a man what is it to you when you start teaching how do you start teaching or what have you learned from others about that how do you get to those moments how do you what do you need to do to find that balance because there is like it's legit if you were in a highly competitive basketball situation maybe finding my best performance at this moment in the paint is not as effective as dominate the paint um, the same is in military, same as in all kinds of professions. Where do you learn the lessons and the skills to adapt your masculinity so that it, it is integrated in an appropriate fashion? No, I think it's a great question. And I think like the main point that I would say is being able to have that off switch because um, this is where I think the, the line gets really blurred between competition and domination. When it's competition, it's, you know, there's 40 minutes on the game clock, there's the out of bounds, and that's what happens in the court. But as soon as the game is over, can you give the guy that you that you hit your shoulder into and he hit his shoulder into, can you dap him up and say, yo, great battle, like, love it, see you next week, right? Like, but when you're like, pissed off because he got that bucket on you right and you like don't shake hands after like you're stuck in a mindset of like domination like you can't see the the limits in that on off switch and then when it comes to kind of that like masculine programming i'll admit that we used to say that we were redefining what it means to be man or redefining masculinity those types of things and what happened was that a lot of people were saying okay well what's the new definition Mm -hmm. and uh we really understood then that actually it's undefining right because the masculine script is so narrow and so small for us when we undefine and we say hey like if you are a sensitive guy who you know on the one hand loves to act and you know we were just talking about my trip to new york city Mm -hmm. act in you know broadway style musical theater but also you play football that's totally fine right like that should be celebrated versus like you know the football player gets the cred and the the broadway actor gets the negative aspect of it and and we used to have a guy who worked for us who uh did theater and played football and he told us the story of how over his time in school he got the theater kids to go to the football games and the football players to go to the the theater shows and to me that that's that's beautiful when not one form of masculinity is valued over another, but we're all entitled to our unique expression of it that's formed by our relationships, our experiences, and and all those things. My sport was rugby, but I spent a couple of years training with my daughter when she was actually fighting a Muay Thai in a Muay Thai gym, sparring and fighting with other people. And there's such a wide, (laughs) this is like the biggest catch-all. Like there is such awful, toxic, terrible associations with pugilism, boxing or otherwise. And Muay Thai is not a pleasant sport. It's beautiful, you know, and I'll talk about the balance here. It is a sport where if called upon, you finish the question, right? Now, I've experienced it, and it is one of the most humbling, beautiful, 
uh, things, and I was never. My last thing in the world I wanted to do ever with anyone was fight. And rugby was a great way of having that happen in a legal, confined, guideline, regulated sense. I could be as aggressive as I wanted, but I didn't break rules, and we were all good. Uh, fighting is a different ball game altogether. And the humility that comes with it, and I think it's absolutely graceful and beautiful. And then there's the other side. I think it really bastardizes the entire, it's the broism, it's the fighting for fighting's sake. There's an audience who respect and understand what it means to be in the ring and the arena in any sort, not just fighting in the world. If you're in an arena, if you're in CEO office, if you're in the, you know, on the stage, uh, it's all the same. And once you're on that stage or in that arena, you understand and appreciate it differently. But then there's everybody else who doesn't get it. That's probably one of the bigger forces that you find in, you know, there is harmony in this. How do we reach out, Jake? How do we reach out into that world and change the people who are ignorant to that? I mean, it's education, but so many people just don't give a shit about being educated, especially men, because, well, who's going to tell us what to do? Like, how do we how do we change that? How do we get that dialogue going? Well, kudos to you on on the success with the rugby because uh, I can see you. Uh, your listeners won't be able to, but you've avoided the cauliflower ears. So, uh, <laughs> but I, it, it's so funny that you talk about it, and and there is a clear parallel because um, another you know big guy thing that I did, I was a doormat on and off for ten years. Um, oh, wow! Worked in in bars and those types of things, and sometimes we we had screenings of the fights and stuff like that. And the people who know and who've trained and whatnot they're there for the technical mastery and to see that and then you got these like out of shape guys in their like affliction t-shirts getting drunk and riled up and thinking that like yeah fights you know and you're just like you miss the point and i think that we we see that you know when we're having these conversations about masculinity too where i think people respect and admire someone who's like really trying to find their purpose and meaning in life and be a good partner be a good father be a good employee be a good leader but there's people who've conflated that with uh, those aspects of it of like, how much money can I make? How high can I climb? How, you know, how many women can I sleep with? How many, whatever, right? Like it's, it's kind of dialed to a hundred in that sense. And so how do we get guys really thinking about their sense of fulfillment and identity, not necessarily being external, but that like intrinsic practice you know uh, really pulling on this analogy here when we're talking about those fighters like they're not doing it for the extrinsic i bet many of them don't necessarily fight just oh just because i'm in the ufc but that intrinsic mastery of like when that person did this i knew to react with this yeah. and it's a puzzle things it's a puzzle exactly. and it's and it's an intellectual physical guttural puzzle and so I think about it for us guys as well, too, you know, like we're given so few tools over our lives, especially when it comes to like emotional expression, these types of things. So if we're presented with a puzzle or a challenge in our lives, and the only thing is we have a hammer, which is anger, we're going to fuck that puzzle up. Right? right. And so like, if we were really that fighter in the arena, relishing the challenge of a puzzle, it's like, okay, like, what other tools do I have? Is it empathy? Is it connection? Is it sitting listen and listening to someone else? Is it saying that I'm sad? What tool is going to help me solve this puzzle? And I just think that our masculine socialization robs us of a well-equipped toolbox over the course of our lives. And all of it, as you just described, seems to go back to one of your first points, and that's the competitive competition. And let's take a step further, comparing. When we are forced or choose to 
compare our masculinity in the context of our culture versus compare how we feel as men in a masculine form. It's different. And when we internalize it, we become more effective at understanding. Does that sound like the right well, side of where you, your, your head is? Let me share maybe a story that I think could help with this. We predominantly on our youth, we work in youth community and workplaces. And on the youth vertical, we predominantly work with 12 to 14 year old boys. And the reason we chose that age group is that's when they're kind of losing their innocence of boyhood. And they're starting to act like what they think it is to be a man. And what they think it is to be a man, there's, it's getting a lot better. There's a lot of other stories out there, but they still want to be the pilot and not the flight attendant. They want to be the CEO and not the secretary. They want to be, you know, the star athlete and not the equipment manager, right? Like there's just a lot of narratives that we all are all fed in, you know, a capitalist society and all these types of things about status and power and, and money and privilege and those types of things. And so we see rises in rates of homophobia, misogyny, racism, other kinds of marginalizing attitudes at that age group because they are practicing their power. But you ask a 12 year old boy and they say, I don't have any power. My mom tells me what to do. My teacher tells me what to do. My coach tells me what to do, right? <laughs> but the way that they're starting to practice that is in their little peer group. And the easy, low-hanging fruit of differentiation is sex, race, gender, those types of things. And important thing is it's such a great opportunity for us to come in and role model different ways of managing that. Because one of the things is like power in society is inevitable. If you're an employer and you have people on your payroll, you have power over them in, in a certain way. If you're an educator and you have a class full of students, you have power over them in a certain way. And so what we really need to be having is conversations about how do we wield power in you know productive ways and start that before you actually have it start that in a way that i'm going back to the sports analogy because we've been talking about this so much i heard this story about an athlete who was frustrated that he wasn't named captain because he was always doing the right things and he went and he vented to his coach like well, coach why am i not the captain, I'm always doing the right things. And the coach said to him, you know, yeah, you are, but that's just you doing the right things. This is a team sport. You're not helping your teammates do the right things, right? And so this athlete then would tutor others, even if they were his direct backup, or, you know, when he was injured, he would watch game film with them and like help break it down. Sure enough, a year later, he's the captain, right? And so how do we have these conversations with these young people who are trying to figure out their power, their status, those types of things in a way that it's not, I get mine and I'm on top, but like, I need to create a culture that's better for everyone. And that's really how I'm leader. I'm a leader. I'm valued. I contribute to my community. It's profound in a lot of ways. And you actually hit me personally today in that part of the conversation. I was an exceptional athlete but I was never the MVP or the, the captain. And because I played my role, I believed strongly that my role was what the team needed. And what it was, was if I just do this, I don't have to interact. I don't have to divulge a secret that I have. And that repelling of all the good men around me was innate, uh, but I just thought I was navigating the world in the best I could be. It's interesting to hear that reflection and that example. I'm also very pleased 
that we are talking sports. I talk boardroom most of the time. And we talk a green room occasionally. That is artists and musicians and entertainers. And we haven't done much work in sports as of until as of late. And so if you believe strongly that coaching, and, and I share that, is a predominant way. It's not the only because there's, the, again, the artists. The artists of seven going into music lessons aren't, they're getting a different, uh, and I don't know what the split is. What is the split? Maybe you know. Male, female dominant uh, in terms of who are the to- coaches or leaders? Coaching is is uh, heavily uh, male dominant and especially as well to um, girls enter sport at a decent rate, but they don't stay in sport. They leave sport as they yeah. progress at a far accelerated rate than than boys do. On the flip side of that, like whether it be any kind of artistry, whether it be like dance or music or those types of things, heavily female dominated. And this is this is the stuff where I really think like when we have these conversations, we have to have them through a gender lens as well, too, because, you know, I lived in Latin America for a little bit. The idea of like dance here in North America, it's like, oh, like a guy that can dance like he's gay or something like that, we'd say. Right. But when I lived in Brazil, like I couldn't dance. I was the the North American with two left feet. Right. <laughs> and, and thankfully, some Brazilian girls took some some pity on me and taught me how to samba a little bit. And whatnot but like it's the same activity and in one culture it's like vilified and homophobic and in the other it's celebrated and and integrated into kind of what a good masculinity is right and so when we think about you know why are boys going in this direction not the, that direction we, we have to look at it through kind of that gender socialization lens and put in the effort to change that narrative let's expand on that so gender identity gender equity I just recently commented on someone's post and they were talking about male allies in in the workforce. And I probably overstepped uh, and I don't do that too often. It's not my place to be on other people's social media. And my biggest comment was men don't need to be women's mentors and allies in the workspace. We need more women in the C-suite. When 50% of the C-suite is women, when we become equitably distributed along our gender lines, a lot of the shit that men have created institutionally and culturally in those workforces will change. Because my observation, I don't know if it's yours, is women don't tolerate a lot of men's bullshit. And that is a really helpful way to start shifting the culture. Let me ask you what your sense of that is and perspective, if you will. The tough part is we love binaries. Our brains love binaries. <laughs> no right? question. And yeah. so rather than it being like a no but, I think it's a yes and. Because uh, having actually. more men be women's allies and, and champions and sponsors and those types of things will achieve the second piece of it. Because the tough part is when we just say, oh, well, we need more women in leadership. If the culture to the path to leadership doesn't change, what we'll end up with is what they call men in heels, women who have embraced a lot of the masculine expectations of those male dominant workplaces to get into leadership. And they may not transform the workplace like we hope, right? Like one of the things that, you know, we talk about, look at what's going on in the States with conversations about abortion. It's not as simple as just saying, oh, well, we need more female Supreme Court justices like Amy Coney Barrett is a woman and she voted against abortion for women. So we need and I'm sure there's many women who would much prefer a male feminist in that role. 
it's not just about the identity of the people in those positions, but it's there's values and beliefs. And so that's where I think, you know, I, I'll, I'll be launching a keynote this fall and it's titled Moving from Men as Allies to Men as Stakeholders. And that doesn't mean that we stop the work of, you know, allyship in that sense. But allyship can, and I think this is where your point was coming from, can also be this idea of like benevolence, right? Women should be protected and put on a pedestal. And they don't need, <laughs> they don't need that. They need us to see them truly as peers. And where I come from with this added piece of moving to men as stakeholders is understanding that the culture and status quo as is doesn't just harm women, trans, non-binary people. It harms us men too. When we no don't question. have a culture where it's normalized for us to take paternity leave to, you know, be there for the earliest moments of our children's lives, develop deep connections with them, support our partners. Like that's a culture that harms us. It's a culture that doesn't let us ask for help because we're so obsessed with individual performance, which causes burnout and stress and those types of things, right? So rather than having this lens of like, I need to be an ally because this culture is harming these people, let's be stakeholders and say this culture is harming all of us. And then we're not doing it on behalf of someone else, but we're doing it because it answers that idea of like, what's in it for me? When I read that title of your keynote, when I was doing a little homework, um, I was really inspired by it. One of the things that I think that also entails is a little bit of getting out of the way. An ally implies that you're you're somehow needed to enable, but that's kind of not quite the role. A stakeholder implies that you're involved and you'll be there in support and you'll be there in advocacy, but in the meantime, you'll step aside to allow others' virtues to let them be raised up. And I think maybe that's more of how I was getting at it, by men not standing in the way and becoming part of the solution, um, we are able to just be able to enjoy other people rising. And, and, maybe, and it's not binary in that sense. However, that's just a simple, simplistic look. Yeah, let's not, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. When people say male allies, we kind of know what they mean and, and those types of things. But I think that when we just stop there, like to be an ally, you have to acknowledge that you have more power and privilege than someone else and that you're going to use that power and privilege to help benefit them. But if that's all it is, and you're not actually questioning the system and the structure of how you got to have that more power and privilege in the first place, you're not really transforming anything. Right. Excellent point. Excellent point. What else would you say is one of the primary concerns that you have in adapting, like making this transition? We're, we're more aware than we've ever been. Society is at least our Western North American society, because you've highlighted that other societies have way different elemental roots of how we feel about our roles in, in society and masculinity. Never before maybe have we been more prepared, but with that kind of a swing, um, there's always a pendulum swing on the other side. So how do, you, how do you see some of the forces against this rising up. I've seen some really awful sides on the hyper-masculine, misogynist side. Um, and how do we, you know, I don't want to go in and pick fights all the time. Like, I'm not here, like, I want to battle this, but I think you can battle on a groundswell of optimism and hope and not have to always go into the darkness with your, you know, the swords and the shields. What do you, what, what is your perspective on that? Because there's some real, you know, this pendulum swings and there's balance um, on extreme sides right now. And, and what's your viewpoint on that? Sometimes it's really hard to 
you don't want to say oh it's it's both sides and and draw kind of like a like a false equivalency like there is really one side that like wants to dominate wants to hate wants to crush wants to whatever yeah um but the tough part is that people who've experienced that you know may be feeling some of the same things towards those people that are expressing those things and and the the hard the messy exhausting the emotional all that stuff exists in the middle Right. And that that's where the vast majority of people actually are. And I think if someone's listening to this podcast or, or is kind of in your or my network, I think one of the important things is like what's happening on social media isn't necessarily reality. Right. It's, <laughs> exactly. it's like an algorithmic bastardization of things that do exist in the world, but that's not the the prevalence of it. And the work is in the places that we eat, sleep, drink, work, play in our communities, right? So like, if we're doing this work on social media, okay, fine, but I just don't think you're gonna really be like changing people's hearts and minds and bringing them along. This work is incredibly relational. Social media is not relational likes and follows is not a relationship so how do you get face to face how do you have these conversations in your home and like honestly sometimes in our community we'll get someone who's like like the hockey canada stuff that's happening right now right like in canada many 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 men grew up playing hockey and this is having them think critically about their experiences growing up and you know maybe there's things they're proud of there's things they're unproud of there's things they're questioning and looking at differently and we had a guy come into our community and he said to us oh man this is just really like i'm going through it right now i had this conversation with my partner what do you all think about it and i had to be like you know what we think about it we're a community committed to like changing the way we see act and think about masculinity like obviously i didn't like brush him off like i'm here to talk about it (laughs) but my invitation to him was go talk to the guys in your beer league about this go talk to you know people you grew up playing hockey with about this right like the people that you have the relationships in your community with that's where you're going to have the entry point for transformation not in some like linkedin post or or whatever it is right i think one aspect of it and i think you know breaking down the vision statement for next gen men of a future where boys and men feel less pain and cause less harm like what we're doing with that is we're leading with empathy so feeling less pain regards to, you know, suicidality, mental health crisis, um, lack of purpose and, and positionality, lack of direction, violence, victims of violence at the hands of other men, like all the empathy in the world for those, uh, those experiences. But then we say, and cause less harm, which is the accountability of like, just because those bad things happen to you or that, you know, you have this uncertainty doesn't mean you get to do that to other people. Right. Right. We say hurt people hurt people, but that's not an excuse. It's like an understanding. And then it's like, how do we help this person heal? How do we help them stop this cycle of violence, of dominance, of lateral violence uh, and trauma in the community? Which naturally puts me into what I was wanting to wrap things up with, and that is Next Gen Men understands that the fate of the next generation of boys to become adult males in our society can be better and will be better. And and we're we're maybe I'm I may be part of as a Gen X group, I'm part of another group that's now aging out over the next decade or 15 years of leadership in business, sports and media and arts and entertainment. 
How do you feel some of the best ways for men to ensure through mentorship and another conversation I had, essentially fatherhood, because that really is what our role is as an adult male. We're fathers, not just to our kids, but the community. How do we manage that? What you think are important things for us to consider to make the next gen better? I love the idea of like fathers of our own children, fathers in the community. It made me think of there's this really beautiful article in the Atlantic uh, called The World Needs Uncles Too. Um, And I thought that was great. That responsibility, I think, is something that we carry. And realistically, I talked about earlier how many men only start to awaken to gender during traumatic experiences, job loss, divorce, mental health crisis, abuse, violence, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the few sensitizing experiences, as we call them, that men start to think critically about gender is being handed a tiny human being and being told, here, you get to program this. And the tough part, I think, is that many men, if it's a girl, will polish the shotgun because they know how, you know, shitty boys can be about that. And rather than like changing how boys are, they they want to protect their girl. And if it's a boy, they, you know, will either kind of go with like, oh, my God, I hope they survive the gauntlet that is becoming a man or I'm going to double down and toughen them up to make sure they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not to mention that, like, now we know there's, you know, trans non-binary identities and how much pressure we put on you're either a boy or a girl from a young age. That's another conversation. But if we take that perspective of, you know, we're fathers of our children, fathers of our community and those types of things. I think the important thing is as well that we give agency and empowerment to the youth, to the next generation, because their vision, their perspective is going to suit what their reality needs. And I know I'm not saying that eloquently. So what I'm going to try to say here is when I was in high school, If I thought of the word trans, I probably thought of tranny. There was nobody out. I was in a Catholic school, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, feminism had never, you know, crossed my mind. The 12-year-olds that we work with now know all of those things. So they're so much further ahead. You know, you're a little bit older than me. I was probably further ahead than you. The youth are further ahead than me. Like that's the natural progression of things. And so in our role as fathers, can we remain curious? Can we remain open-hearted and open-minded for them to tell us what their world is like versus us dictating what our world was like? Because What we're talking about throughout this entire conversation is patriarchy. And when we break that word apart, it's potter and archaim, father power, literally handed down to us by our fathers, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when that cycle breaks, we're able to change the narrative. And I'll just give one quick example to, to give some hope and perspective on this. Where the chain broke in my family, my grandfather... So actually, it starts with my paternal grandmother. She was fluent in seven languages. And we (laughs) are from communist Czechoslovakia. And you don't get to travel out of communist Czechoslovakia at the time, right? Right. The 70s or whatever. But because of her unique skill set, she was a technical secretary sent on diplomatic missions to like Uruguay, Kenya, all these amazing things. She was a badass woman. Yeah, no kidding. Left my grandfather home with two sons. And my grandfather then became the primary caregiver and, you know, made sure they were clothed, fed, went to school, all those types of things. And my dad was six years older than his brother. So he took on a little bit of that role as well, too. And I think my dad growing up in a culture or in a house that saw women as his equivalent and, you know, men as a caretaking responsibility, those types of things. That's how he raised me. 
And that's how I think I am in this society, in this world, right? So when that patriarchy, father power chain is broken, we're changing the narrative for the generations that come, that next generation of men. And so whether there are children or whether they're the children of the community, like let's sit and talk with them about what they're responding to in their community and lives rather than dictating, this is how I grew up, this is how my grandfather grew up, this is how you should grow up. Jake, there are going to be many people inspired by this conversation and they're going to want to act, hopefully. If you're out there, act. What the message that you, the messages that we've shared, that what you've provided in terms of your perspective and support, experience and wisdom, I appreciate. Where, if someone's motivated, what are they going to do uh, to support you or to get involved with you? I appreciate that. Despite my my railing against social media, if people want to follow it, you know we're we're at Next Gen Men on on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those things. You can find us on LinkedIn too. If people want to keep in touch and get our newsletter, it's actually futureofmasculinity.com, and that way it'll get in their inbox and they can kind of keep up with it. But I love your your call to action about you know taking action. And the reality is that we don't think that you know we as an organization and the people that work here are are special or unique. We we want people to have these conversations in their community and where they are. And so we really are passionate about developing tools and experiences to to support that. Something as simple as as we created a deck of cards called uh, Cards for Masculinity, right? And it's awesome. fifty. 50 conversation prompts, All you don't need any you know, training or anything, but if you have that uh, young man in your life, whether you're his father or you're the community father, as you said, start having those conversations, take that action into those spaces where you know maybe women and, and other perspectives aren't, the locker room, the boardroom, the pub, the workshop, um, that's where those conversations need to be seated. Thank you, Jake Sticka. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for how you're helping men, help, help you're normalizing the narrative, changing the narrative. Thank you for all you do. And thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was a great discussion. We're sharing the Unlimited Worth Project podcast, book, and my speaking engagements worldwide so we can normalize the narrative and encourage conversations between men who have healed and men who need to, while reducing the drama and sensationalism in the media, and seek the treatment and support they need to heal. They are worthy of love and success. When they know this, they can realize their unlimited worth. All guests appearing on the podcast have done so voluntarily. We do not require a fee from our guests. They have had the chance to express any concerns they might have and consented to their voice, image, name, and likeness in video or audio format to be used by Mike and the Unlimited Worth Project. This podcast has been edited for content and clarity prior to publication. The podcast content and likenesses are owned by Mike Skripnik Fit Family Enterprises, Inc. and the Unlimited Worth Project and our producer, Anibus Media. Redistribution without prior written consent is prohibited. The information, suggestions, and ideas of the podcaster or any other non-accredited, unqualified guests are exactly that, opinions, and do not constitute professional advice, counsel, or prescriptive recommendations for our listening audience. If you need help, seek professional help and do it today.